And uh, today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3, a very exciting chapter. The, we're going to look at the epic, true story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, once you hear this dramatic story, when you're a child growing up in church, or from your parents, or as an adult, you first hear this story, I guarantee this, once you hear this story, you never forget this story. It's an unforgettable uh, moment in biblical history and in history in general. God delivering three men from a fiery furnace. But today, the, the delivering... Uh, the deliverance of God, of these men, is just astounding. That's an amazing part of this story. But I'm going to really narrow in today on the faith that it took for these three men to stand their ground. And we sometimes get the idea this morning that faith is just trying really hard not to doubt. You know, that's what faith is. Faith is just me really trying really hard not to have any doubts but really, actually, faith, faith is putting our trust in the Word of God and obeying it no matter the cost. That really what it, really what it boils down to from our perspective. I love what Warren Wearsby said, and I'll have this quote up here for you. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. That is really, really good way to say it. I'm going to refer probably to that a couple times here. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. The stories that we read in history of persecuted saints, for me, when I read those, you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you read some amazing story of, of a person being persecuted, beaten, or even killed for their faith, it always astounds me, always shakes me to my core. And it seems like, you know, that's a level of Christianity that seems really so far above anything I've ever known. But I will say recently, you know, as we were just talking, we've gone through our own wake-up call as believers here this past year. Um, And things like persecution seem to be getting closer to home. I want to share with you real quick an email that I got. Um, I pulled it up here. This was last week, and you might have heard this story in the news, but this was an email from a, from a, a brother who has been uh, doing a lot of work and help um, with the pastor in San Jose from Calvary Chapel, Pastor Mike McClure. Who is thre- Here's the subject line. Pastor Mike McClure may be arrested today. We urgently need you to... Join us for prayer at 12.30 p.m. at Calvary. And he says, hi, Pastor. Can you come to the prayer and lunch for Mike at Calvary at 12.30? That's followed by a large news conference at 3.30 at the courthouse. And here's the next line. Please don't think you're safe if you're following the rules. We found two other churches that were obeying all the rules, but one person refused to wear a mask, and now they're being fined something like $1,200 a day. So at some point, we need to take a stand. The more pastors that can show up, the better you want to spend two minutes talking to the press, come ready. Why well, we couldn't make that, but I mean, just think about that. I was, you know, we were hearing stories like this, and so we're kind of becoming a little numb to it, and you're kind of hearing it in the news and seeing it. But later on, after I got that, I started, it started to hit me how surreal this is, that I'm getting an email from a person really not that far away from me about a pastor that's about, that could be arrested. 
I mean, that's, uh, to get that kind of an email in this generation is just un- unbelievable, really. The great challenge then that we have right now is to be obedient to God, no matter the consequences, no matter the feelings within us, no matter the circumstances around us, and no matter the consequences that lie before us. That really is faith, faith. Thankfully, our consequences have not come anywhere near what the men in Daniel chapter 3 had to face. (laughs) And the truth is this morning that I don't know if I have ever seen with my eyes uh, the kind of faith that it takes to do what these three men did, these three Hebrew men. I'm, I'm telling you right now, the more I was studying this and looking at this, I, am, I, I was just beside myself thinking about the level of faith that these men have. So we're going to look at it. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, the previous chapter, we saw that Daniel made a request at the very end that his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would be, uh, would be lifted up in the ranks. And so King Nebuchadnezzar did that on behalf of uh, what God did through Daniel. And so he made them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, leaders over the affairs of Babylon, it says. But now, in this next chapter, we're going to see their loyalties really put to the test. Who was their real king? Who was the real king of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they were going to have to stand. We don't know how much time has passed between these two chapters. Some say it was short. Some others say it was maybe 20 years. But it really doesn't matter, actually. The story is incredible either way. And it's no less incredible no matter how much time was in between. Now, one more thing before we dive in. People always want to know, where was Daniel in Daniel chapter 3? Where was he at? These three guys are doing all this. Where was Daniel? Well, no one knows for sure. Nobody can say they know for sure. But think about this. Remember, it says in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel was over all the affairs. He was put over all the affairs of Babylon. So perhaps, as a person who's really in charge of everything, he was sent on a business trip by the king to other neighboring nations or wherever, and he was just on business for the king elsewhere. That could have been the case. Or, one thought I had is perhaps because of that high position that he was just given, and if it was, this was close in time, and he had proven to Nebuchadnezzar um, who he was, and so maybe because of in that high position, he was shielded from having, or being, ha- having to be forced to do this, to bow down to this altar that was made. In fact, Daniel chapter 2, verse 49 says that Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And so that made me think possibly it's because he was just so... The king just kind of pushed him and said, don't don't worry about this. Who knows? But it is is certainty that he would have been right there with those guys. He would have been right in the fiery furnace with those three guys had he been there. There's just no doubt about that. We've already made his faith pretty clear. Some Bible teachers, as we launch in, have suggested that Daniel's absence, though, is sort of a prophetic picture Mm -hmm. of the tribulation. Uh, The believers... In the tribulation, it's a picture of the rapture. The rapture happens, and the believers are taken out. And during the great tribulation, uh, the believers are not there. And the three Hebrew children that are placed into the fire represent those believers who are saved during the tribulation and face the fiery furnace of persecution during the tribulation. So, interesting thought there. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So remember in his dream that he had in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was pictured as the head of gold. 
Perhaps he was thinking about that. He was thinking about how gold represented himself and represented Babylon. So he decides, let's make a golden statue. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That is a very tall, skinny statue. But, but they say perhaps there was a wider base at the bottom, and that's uh, what, uh, what the actual statue itself, the whole thing would have been. But we don't know. We don't know what the uh, image was. We don't know what it looked like exactly. We don't know if it was of Nebuchadnezzar himself or if it was one of the Babylonian gods. Could have been either. Could have been something else. I don't know. But really, no matter what, no matter what the image itself was or the statue uh, represented, it represented Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It was a moment of pride for him. It was a promotion of his own power to be able to build a golden statue that was that large. Only in my kingdom could we build something this amazing. He wanted everyone to be impressed by his wealth, by his power, by his greatness, And he set it up in the plain of Dura, which no one knows exactly where it is, but if it is where they think, it's an area real close to Babylon there, and it is a plain, and so a a 90-foot statue would stand up so tall, and people from all around, miles around, could see that huge statue. This was a way for Nebuchadnezzar to just increase his own pride. But real quick, before we condemn him too much here about his pride, um, remember... that we all in this room have a desire to make ourselves seem more golden than we really are. (laughs) We're naturally inclined to build an image of ourselves that looks better than others. We we may not build statues. We may not build uh, images in that way. But we'll build our image with our houses. We'll build our images with our cars. We'll build our images with clothing. We'll build it in the way that we talk about ourselves, in the way that we put down others so that we can see ourselves better. That's why Paul had to tell us from God, esteem others better than yourselves. Esteem others better than yourselves. Verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains and judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So these were the leaders of various aspects of the government throughout Nebuchadnezzar's provinces the Babylonian provinces, they were the bureaucrats, but they were the ones that, you know, all the different conquered nations and the conquered peoples, they was, were the ones put in charge. They were over the, the money. They were over the government, the daily workings of the government. Now, by gathering all the leaders, it seems that Nebuchadnezzar's other motive here was to sort of solidify his position over everybody. I want everybody to understand and unify everybody under this one great statue that I've built, and I want everybody to understand who's in charge here. No matter where, what country you come from, and if I conquered your land, or where, you're, where you think you're living, I'm in charge, and I want everybody to come under my leadership. Let's all unify under me. That's Nebuchadnezzar's motive, obviously. 
perhaps he sensed some uprisings in some of the different places. And maybe he needed to see for himself who was on his side. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to bring everybody, no matter where your religion is or whatever, I'm going to bring you here and you're going to have to bow before this image. And I want to see who's got full buy-in on this whole Babylonian thing. And I want you to, be, to make sure you're under me. And the, these leaders would, uh, do, would come, understand what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do, and then they would go back and tell the people to do the same. Because Nebuchadnezzar knew that if he could get you to bow once, if he could get you to bow once, even if it wasn't heartfelt, he was okay with that, because it would be easier to get you to bow the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time. He wanted, he wanted these leaders to, to, to give in to him just a little bit. Give in to me just a little bit, and then you can go back to your regular lives, worship whoever you want to worship, but for this moment, you're going to worship me. You're going to worship what I want you to worship. And such a picture of Satan's temptations in our lives. <clears throat> Come on. Just give in just a little bit. I'm just asking for a little of you. Just one little bow, one little knee. And as we know, it's a slow fade. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away, as the song says. It's those little cracks that will allow, over time, that become chasms, if not careful. If we don't deal with them quickly, if we need to do what John says and confess our sins, confess our sins. We need to bring them before the Lord regularly. And that keeps that sweet fellowship with the Lord, understanding, God, I am... I'm not, who I, I'm not who I need to be. And Lord, I confess, I bring this sin before you. And what, what cleansing takes place when God says, I, f- I forgive that. Let's clean that crack up. Let's patch that baby up. And every day we keep uh, close contact with the Lord that way. Because we know, and you and I know this, the devil will not give up ever, 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 ever. Verse 4, then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So now we understand, okay, this is more than just a political thing you're doing. <clears throat> Notice how he uses music. You wouldn't use music if it was just a way to get people on your side. no. This was meant as a moment of worship. Uh, Wind instruments, stringed instruments, percussion instruments right here, and all kinds of music, it says. Each one of those represents a different style of instrument. This was a full orchestra. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said we could call these folks the Babylon Beboppers, you know, or or maybe it was the Chaldean Philharmonic. Who knows which, which one it was. But whatever it sounded like, we don't know. The point is... By using music and commanding worship, we see a very clear religious element in all this. I want you to bow. I want you to bow. I want you to worship. And here's the music to get those emotions flowing. It's very interesting how music assists in worship. Good worship or false worship. Music is a powerful tool. Music helps you feel something. Music helps you feel something with your emotions. And that can be a wonderful thing. We ought to worship God with our emotions. We ought to let our emotions flow when we're worshiping the Lord. We ought to worship God with our mind. We ought to worship God with our will. We ought to worship God with our emotions. Every part of us. That's why 
it's so important to have spiritually sensitive people in charge of music ministry at a church, for example. And thank the Lord, the home church does. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord. So we have to let good music assist our worship. I love what Martin Luther said. Here's a quote for you. I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people joyful. They forget thereby all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. That's a lot. Martin Luther loved music. You read a lot of quotes about music from him. But so, he, it's so true. Music does have such wonderful power for good. It drives away the spirits as David did for uh, Saul when he played his harp. But it can also swing the other way with, with false worship. We have to be very, very careful where our music is leading our emotions. Nebuchadnezzar was hoping all this music and all this fanfare and worship would get everybody to unite. And just like the devil, Nebuchadnezzar makes the temptation even stronger by using fear. Here we go, verse 6. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. A picture of maybe a, something like maybe the furnace might have been. There's probably this large or smelting furnace that they used maybe for building this huge uh, altar that was image that was placed up. And this fiery furnace was, I'm sure, right pretty close to that, uh, that statue. And everyone could see that, that big old uh, fiery furnace. And that furnace represents fear. It represents fear in our lives, the great enemy of faith. There's one huge enemy that faith face, our faith faces, and that is fear. Everyone knew the king here wasn't just saying words. This is not a joke. The king Nebuchadnezzar, he probably had thrown people into the fiery furnace for all kinds of offenses. He was a very, uh, very evil man. So imagine being the three Hebrews and first hearing this. We're, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace if you do not bow. They, they didn't want this. They didn't ask for this law in their land. Uh, they, didn't do, they didn't do something wrong to, uh, to deserve this or to be put in this position. This whole thing was forced upon them because of the sin of somebody else. And how many of us often are in a position where we're, we're in a horrible position because of the sin of somebody else and maybe even our government? And it was just one of those moments where living in a wicked world forces you to make a choice. And I'm sure the fear that they began rising in their heart, I'm sure they had to deal with fear. That was the first thing they had to deal with, the fear test. But to the extreme here, verse 7, Therefore at that time, when the people heard the sounds of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. That's verse 7. Are we, did I skip verse 7? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I want, to, I want you to think about this, though. Right, they're standing there, and the, this verse 7 tells us that everybody started bowing down. Everybody. Everybody. No matter your language, where you're from, every land, they began to bow. Any hope that these three Hebrew children, these three Hebrew men had of anyone else maybe being on their side, anybody else standing with them, to band with them. Any hope was completely dashed at that moment. Everyone bowed, including their own countrymen. 
the Jewish countrymen that were there with them, the thousands and thousands that had been brought to Babylon that were there with them, all of them bowed too. It was just them, those three. The pressure to conform at that moment would have been so intense. Just do it. And this whole thing, and then just get it over with. The peer pressure test. Especially hard when there are snitches. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man should, that should hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to name the three. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You can see, you can read the animosity, the jealousy of their voice. These certain Jews. Not all the Jews, just these certain Jews. Thou, that thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Meaning, I should have been set over those affairs. And you set these guys king. You, you, you made a huge mistake. You should have, should have chose me. Look at these guys. Probably ever since they were given that position, these guys, these Chaldeans have been looking for an opportunity to throw Shadrach and company under the bus. All eyes are on Nebuchadnezzar now. What's he going to do with these guys? In anger, he calls for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now to Nebuchadnezzar's credit right here, he was allowing them to set the record straight. He didn't just throw them right in the fire furnace immediately. He gave them their day, their moment in court. And he gives them another chance. Verse 15, now, if ye be ready, at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, whew, you fall down and worship the image which I have made, well, it's going to be fine. But if you worship not, <clears throat> you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Woo! That, that changes everything, I think, in God's heart and God's mind. Oh, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you just put the nail in your coffin, buddy. The pressure was on, though, this time for for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the pressure was more intense for them the second time. All eyes are on them. What are you going to do? He's given you a, a chance. Everybody's watching. Now, this is where I would have started reasoning. Self-preservation would have kicked in. I don't really want to get burned in that fire. That doesn't sound great. And Lord, you know, a silent prayer, Lord, couldn't I do more for you if I was alive? Right. I mean, right. doesn't that make sense, God? I mean, here I am. I'm, we're in great positions of leadership here in Babylon, and we could use our position for the people of God. If I was alive, man, we could really do some good stuff. Or how about this one? This is probably where I would have gone. Lord, what if I only bow down on the outside, but my heart is not bowing down? You know, I'm not really worshiping. And this happens all over the world, actually. Um, people get saved, and they need to denounce their gods. 
But oh, but you know, I'm going to add Jesus to my pantheon of gods and it'll be fine. We can't do that. Or, as somebody suggested, why don't you, maybe Lord, here's, when the music starts, I'm just going to bend down to tie my sandals or pick up a coin on the ground or something. Nobody will know. I'll just blend right in and nobody will I'll know what's happening. <clears throat> the world would not, listen, if you think about this, the world would have never known the difference. We would have never known the difference had they just taken one of those options and just did it. I'm not worshiping on the inside. They, we would have never known, but they would have known. And God would have known. And that was most important to them, what, what God thinks. That was the only thing that mattered to them. And that's where we need to be. That is faith. Again, I, I, these, I have seen some faith in people, but it's hard for me to fathom this level of faith. I'm telling you, three out of hundreds of thousands of people would not bow. And why wouldn't they bow? Because in their minds, this was all about obedience to the first and second commandment. Have no other gods before me and make no graven image and bow down to it. That was, that was the only thing that mattered to them. And we will rather, I would rather die disobeying, I'd rather die than disobey the Ten Commandments. That's basically what they were saying with all this. I would rather die than disobey God's Word. This is faith with a capital F. Scripture teaches and gives example after example, like Warren Wiersbe said, that faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. This story is about the power of God to deliver, but it's also about the faith and obedience of men to God's word. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't need to defend ourselves here, king. We don't even really need to give an answer. And And they're about to say we don't need to defend God either in one of the greatest faith responses in the entire Bible, verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Verse 18. But if not, (laughs) I love that, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Okay, so now this, you see, this confuses us. Because we think faith would never say, but if not. Mm -hmm. If real faith would not have said that. Faith would have just said, we're going to do it. And we're going to be delivered. But that's not a correct view of faith. Again, to these guys, in their heart, this was not about deliverance. This was about obedience. But if not... But if not, see, they weren't even 100% sure that God was going to deliver them out of this particular fire. But even if he doesn't, and you have to shovel us out like ash, as ashes, we will not obey this edict ever. They didn't know God's circumstantial will, but they knew God's revealed will, yeah. the Bible. We know what that says. We don't know what God's going to do in the, in the future, but we know what God says to do right now. They, they had the understanding that sometimes God chooses not to deliver. Sometimes God will do that, King. He will not deliver me from this present affliction that I'm in. He will allow me to stay in the fire. But see, this whole thing really helps us get a fuller understanding of what faith is. Faith is 
not willing, willing myself into the state that I, so I don't have any more doubt. It's full surrender to the Lord, no matter what the outcome. I mean, look, think about it. Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith there, God didn't write about those men and women because they were some super saint. He wrote about those people because they obeyed God and followed God in spite of everything they were going through, no matter the circumstances that were coming against them. When you don't know what to do, do what you know you're supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> Just do what God's revealed will says. The world may put us in the fire of cancel culture, but we'll still obey God's word. The, the devil may convince our friends and our family to despise us for what we stand on, which is, becomes a fiery furnace inside of our heart. But we must continue to obey God's word in the middle of that fiery furnace. We may, we may face a physical fire someday, but we will not bow. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. So after this brave answer, verse 19, then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one, uh, seven times more than it was wont to be heated. Whew. Now any minor feelings of mercy that Nebuchadnezzar might have had for these guys a moment ago is completely gone. He fired it up seven times hotter. By the way, that's a great sermon tile. It's going to get seven times hotter. <laughs> but maybe Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking straight here because this would cause a more quick death rather than a, more, <laughs> a death of suffering. Anyway, verse 20, And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army. Think about that. He commanded the most mighty men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, their hats, their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Nebuchadnezzar's rage here, he loses his most mighty men. But God still had his, has his mighty men right here. <laughs> Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said this unto his counselors, did not we cast three men into the midst of the fire? Then answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, <laughs> walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar, here with his pagan theology, he didn't know what he was seeing. <laughs> he basically said, I just see one of the gods in there. Little did he know that uh, it was most likely the one true God that was in there the fourth man the fourth man it was most likely the pre-incarnate sighting of jesus yeah. or as they call it a theophany jesus himself in the midst of the flame with these three men the fourth man unbelievable the only thing that the fire touched on these men was the ropes that bound them they were loosed and that, not, not, it didn't touch anything else. Now they were loose and they were walking, it says. I was, I'm thinking, what were they walking around doing? Why are they walking? They're walking around, talking, hanging out with Jesus, praising God, checking the inside of a burning, fiery furnace. What that, wow, I've never seen what this would look like. Wow! The faithful Jews, think about the faithful Jews reading this account later. I mean, they're reading this, and we're, we're taken over by the Romans or whatever, but I'm reading this, 
wow, what encouragement and faith it would build up in them. But God also wanted this miracle to have an impact on Nebuchadnezzar, the world leader, as well. Look at the effect on old Nebi, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High, come forth, come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. Look how they didn't come out until Nebuchadnezzar told them to. They were having a good time with Jesus in there. Verse 27, the princes, governors, captains, and king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon, whom, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their heads singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. <laughs> how do they know to write that? Well, they walk out and everyone's around them, sniffing them, touching their clothes, looking all over them. What is up? Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent an angel, his angel and delivered his servants that trusted him, and have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies. <laughs> That's what a Christian does. They yield their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. That is faith. This all ends in glory to the Lord. And this is why God chose to do this great miracle at this time. Then Nebuchadnezzar does the only thing Nebuchadnezzar knows how to do, and that's threaten people. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak against a mist, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. <laughs> it reminded me of like one of those zealous biker Christians, you know, that gets saved and wants everybody to, to know what they're feeling, so they'll beat people into the kingdom of God, you know, if they have to. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now this story makes us say, wow, God, he can deliver. God can deliver from any fiery furnace. Never. We should never doubt his ability. And we should always take our situation to the Lord in prayer. But some may ask, why doesn't God do this for every persecuted person throughout history? Why not? Why doesn't God... Help me out of every one of my trials. And I say, who knows? <laughs> I'm not God, and I also say this. It's okay not to know. Yeah. Shadrach, think about this in light of this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know if God would do it for them either. They said, but if not. But if not. So it's okay to have that, but if not. But if God doesn't right now do the exact thing I'm thinking I want Him to do, God is not always going to do it that way. As somebody said, this story is a, a token. It's not a blueprint. But, but that should never stop us from praying for a miracle. Ever. He, our God is able to get us out of this fiery furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand. I know that. But if not... But if not, I still won't bow. That is faith. That is a picture, a full picture of faith. Uh, I, I, I'm going to let God decide if a miracle would be best in this moment. If a miracle in this moment would bring the most glory to God, then so be it. But if me persevering through the fiery furnace would bring more glory to God in this moment, then let's do that. Then let's go on with that. So here's our key lesson today, and that's on your paper there. What matters most is not deliverance from the trial, but obedience in the trial. So when a difficult trial of faith comes, we, as people of God, focus on obedience. 
and let God deal with the deliverance. We don't know how he's going to deliver. Those three men, they went in there. They had no clue if he would, for sure. They knew he could. And even if they were confident that he would, they didn't know that Jesus himself was going to show up in there with them. Wow, what a, what a cool thing. That just makes it even more incredible. So who knows how God will deal with our situation and what brings him the most glory. But we do get a lot of comfort out of this story for this reason. The thought, just the thought of the fourth man. <laughs> the fourth man always knows where to find you. The fourth man always knows what fire you're about to go into or you're in, in right now. The fourth man will show up when you need him. There's an anonymous poem. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Lord, we know, Lord, that you are a great God. You are able to deliver out of the fiery furnace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we, Lord, we ask for deliverance. Yeah. But, oh, Lord, in the middle, let us focus on following you, obeying what you say. And, Lord, let you deal with the miracle. We trust you. We put, uh, we put our hands up in praise to you because you are a great God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed. Amen.